I think that if we want a living earth and we want to fulfill our destiny, which in the old story was conquest and domination, and in the new story is service and participation, service to all life on earth, participation in the universes coming more and more alive, then we're going to have to come from a place of love. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I am your host, Amber Magnolia Hill, and this is episode 60. Always a moment to pause and celebrate and feel good when I hit these, um, you know, every 10 episodes mark and just really. Uh, appreciate all that it takes to put this podcast together and appreciate my audience so very much for being here, for allowing the show to continue growing and finding new ears and amazing new guests like today's Charles Eisenstein. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. Hopefully you've already heard of Charles. If not, you're about to get your mind blown. It's a really wide-ranging conversation, as I tend to do, very similar to episode 57 with Dr. Kelly Brogan, where these people are such brilliant original thinkers who have put so much out there um, that I've got to go where my curiosity leads me in the interview. And hopefully you consider this podcast and these interviews um, entry points into the person's work and whatever calls to you, you can go deeper into. It's my goal to, um, you know, pique your own curiosity and uh, to encourage you to spend some time that might otherwise be spent, you know, watching TV or scrolling Instagram, um, reading a book or listening to another podcast that goes deeper into ideas that fascinate you and things that really call to your soul and your inner being. So I'm just, as I say to him, so grateful for Charles and his work. Um, I had been so confused in the last year or so over the climate change debate and what both sides were saying so vehemently and strongly I've also been really confused over food and food choices. I've talked about that on this show before, um, that I didn't even realize I had food confusion until I started this podcast and started talking about these things with various guests. And so we don't, we don't get into the food at all in this interview, but Charles has a wonderful book called The Yoga of Eating that I've seen around forever. I'm pretty sure it was on the shelf in 2005 when I worked at the uh, co-op in Sacramento, which is, you know, what really got me started on the path I'm on. Um, But never picked it up and read it until this last month and just absolutely life-changing and so beautiful. And then since then, he's written really profound works like Sacred Economics and The Ascent of Humanity and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And this recent book, Climate, A New Story, which we spend about the first half of the conversation talking about before we range off really into a diversity of other topics. Um, So just this is a person who can hold so much information in their mind at once and make sense of it. 
and, um, you know, come up with new ways of seeing things, new ways of doing things, and then articulate that really well, both in his books and in his many other podcast interviews. I mean, I listened to so many of them in preparation for this interview, and I have many of them not yet listened to that I'm still listening to and going to listen to because I just really like every moment I spend um, taking in Charles' work is of benefit to me. So it's a lot of information, but don't be overwhelmed. You know, from now on, Charles Eisenstein is one of your lifelong teachers. (laughs) At least that's how I'm approaching it. And, you know, this is just the beginning. I have so much more to learn. And, you know, it's not didactic. He's not like, this is how it is. It's like, here's some ideas to explore. Um, And it's just, it's wonderful. And everything feels in resonance. Everything feels in resonance. So before we get into it, I want to tell you quickly that I have recorded an outro for this episode. So after the interview, that will be there. It's just me talking. It's just me expanding on some of the things we touched on in this interview that I've always wanted to go deeper into. And now I have the opportunity to do them since they got brought up. Um, I'm not saying that Charles agrees with everything I'm saying by any means, um, but some of what I'm talking about has been informed by his work for sure. So in the outro, I talk about human hubris and the unforeseen consequences of thinking we can outsmart the vital life force, which is nature or evolution. I talk about how challenges to the immune system both initiate children into their next level of unfolding and help prevent later chronic disease. And we look at that from both the scientific perspective and the perspective of ancestral wisdom and knowing the polarization in the vaccine conversation, cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias, and exploring what it would take for me to change my mind. And then briefly a short exploration and some resources for learning more about the harmful consequences of praise, rewards, and punishments when it comes to raising kids. So again, just things that got briefly mentioned in the interview that I wanted to go more into and provide some more resources for. So this episode's Patreon offering is going to be a giveaway. I just love doing the giveaways when I have an author on and, um, you know, giving people an opportunity to get a book in their hands that they might not otherwise be able to or take the time to acquire. So Charles has these wonderful books that I've already named. And the way I'm going to do this is you can go to patreon.com slash medicine stories to enter. And it'll be open to everyone, not just patrons of the podcast. But if you choose to become a patron, there are all sorts of rewards and goodies there for you that you can read about content provided by most of my past guests and by myself, all in line with the things we talk about on this show. Um, the best of them at the $2 a month level or most of them at the $2 a month level. And, um, so you can enter there and whoever wins will be able to choose the book that they want. And I'll put a link, you know, to Charles books so you can learn more about them and decide which one you would like. Um, so check that out there and, I am so excited to share this interview with Charles now. Um, I went to his website to grab the bio, which I don't always do bios. Not everyone always wants their bio read. You know, it's just kind of a a funny thing. Um, But his about page is somewhat long and written in the first person, which I appreciate so much. (laughs) 
<laughs> he's like pretending to be third person bios that are actually written by the person themselves are just so silly to me. Um, so I love this about page. You can find it at charleseisenstein.org. Um, the about link is at the bottom of the page I noticed, but you can check out his essays, videos, other interviews, his own podcast, um, his online courses, events, books. There's a donate option. So much good stuff at charleseisenstein.org. I've been spending a ton of time there lately. Really recommend the essays too. There's just so much to get into. I hope you benefit from Charles' work as much as I have, and I am basically 100% positive that you will. So without further ado, let's dive into this interview with Charles Eisenstein. Hi, Charles. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Hello, Amber. Happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, It's just really fun, you know, getting to do this podcast. I get so immersed in people's work, and then to actually get to speak to them, it's just really something I'm very grateful for. Um, So I kind of want to start big with like a wide lens because you talk about such a diverse array of subjects from like fully reframing the climate conversation to laying out a pathway to a whole new economic system to guiding people towards their own inner knowing when it comes to food choices and just like so much more. But there seems to be like this underlying theme of just examining and questioning the cultural mythologies that have been handed down to us. And in fact, I heard you say once somewhere that you've had a lifelong resistance to the program that was handed to you. So like what what is that program or those programs and how has this lifelong resistance guided you on your path? And like, were you a misfit child? You know, I think actually every child is a misfit child. Nobody, maybe I'm projecting my own experience, but I think on some level, um, everybody feels that they're a misfit, that they don't quite fit into the categories and boxes and uh, life maps that are offered to us. And one reason is simply because these categories and boxes and life maps have been developed through an industrial age that required standardization of, like in a factory, you have have standardized parts, standardized components, standardized products. Therefore, you need standardized job descriptions and standardized people to perform them. And we are not standardized people. We are, every one of us, a unique human being. So to fit into those requires some kind of violence and some kind of discomfort. And so I think part of it is that. And Part of it is, and here I am like intellectualizing the whole thing when you ask me a more personal question, but um, anyway, part of it also is that the story that we have lived in is less and less resonant. The story that tells us what a human being is and what the glorious destiny of humanity is and how to live on this earth uh, that, that seemed so exciting. 50 or 100 years ago, with the onward march of science and progress, like the conquest of nature, that wasn't even a bad thing. People would be like, yeah, conquest of nature 100 years ago. But that story that still defines our institutions and tells us how to be, um, we don't resonate with that anymore. And so that's another reason for our feeling of not fitting in. And then, of course, that gets pathologized and the ways that we rebel 
against the conformity, you know, like by becoming addicted or depressed or anxious, those are medicalized and treated as diseases, even sometimes by herbalists. Oh, you know, here's something for your depression. Well, maybe you're supposed to be depressed if you're in this life circumstance. Maybe your depression is your soul rebelling against it and wanting you to withdraw from it. Maybe there's actually a core of sanity underneath what's getting pathologized. So anyway, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been through my own journey of resisting the program in various ways. And it really helped me to identify what the program is and where it comes from. And that's what connects all the different things that you mentioned that I work with. It's whether you're talking about food and diet or politics or environment, uh, technology, medicine, education, like any of these realms, the same transition from a story of separation to a story of interbeing is underway. And so that's like the basic lens through which I understand seemingly disconnected emergent phenomena. You said that um, that we're kind of falling out of resonance with that old story. And do you think that that truly everyone is falling out of resonance with that story? I mean, this is what I feel. And, you know, the more I do this podcast and talk to people, and it just seems like everyone is is waking up to something different and new. But like Donald Trump, is he falling out of resonance with the old stories? I think it is a global phenomenon. Um, there are still many people who need to finish, uh, need to complete the storyline of the story that they have been in. And collectively, we still need to complete the storyline of separation. And so there are those who have uh, generously volunteered to complete that, to live out the storylines of separation. Uh, maybe Donald Trump is one of them. You know, thank you, Donald Trump, for living your life so that I don't have to. Um, because the guy doesn't look that happy to me, you know. So, so I think on some soul level, he doesn't resonate with it either. But it's not done yet. So I, I, I do believe that more and more people are becoming ready. They are reaching the end of a narrative arc. And... And that is scary because what's on the other side of that? But what's in between the story that you're in and the story that you will someday become? There's a process of breakdown. There's a process of confusion, bewilderment, not knowing, being lost, not knowing who you are, not knowing what to do. And that territory is frightening. So the fear of that and the various bribes and threats that are offered to us to stay in the old story, um, they, you know, hold people there. But a lot of the bribes and threats are becoming less effective too. Like the bribes, that if you study hard and you become a good student and get straight A's and you go to college, you know, and then you get your graduate degree and then you're gonna get a job, a good job. But now a lot of people, they obey that to the letter and instead of a good job, they get $100,000 in student loan debt and a, a marginal job. And um, 
you know, it, it's not, it, it's not the, um, the future that was promised us. Well, even that um, the job is the final goal. Like, yeah, because everyone loves their job. That's what everyone wants to yeah. wake up in the morning and go do. Um, so that reminds me of, I'm just going to quote you one more time. The things I've been saying are no longer beyond the pale because the boundaries of the unthinkable are wavering. The boundaries of the unthinkable are wavering. Like what an exciting time to be alive. You know, I've had a real palpable sense of it since probably my teenage years. Like, whoa, like shit's getting real and I'm going to be here on this earth for some transformative times. But it is also, as you said, scary and unknown in this transitionary phase. And something I appreciate so much about you is that you are not afraid to talk about love. We are not afraid to talk about love on this podcast either. What what role do you see love playing in the transition? The transition is love. Like, what else do you call it when the boundaries of yourself expand to include someone else, some other being. This is, so I, I spoke about the story of separation, the, the separate self that identifies who you are as a, a separate individual. It could be conceived of as a soul encased in flesh and separate from the flesh. That's the religious conception of separation it could also be the psychological conception, which is that you are a consciousness uh, separate from the flesh, or that is, um, or you are just a meat machine, um, and consciousness is the ephemera of your brain state, and and you're programmed by your genes to maximize your self-interest. That's also separation. So where did I begin that sentence with? Um, yeah, love. So, so to relax that and include somebody else as part of self, that's what love is. That if you love somebody, then your happiness, your well-being is inseparable from theirs. You're not separate anymore. It's just like, your own liver or your own heart. You, you wouldn't be able to say, ah, I've got a serious liver disease, but I'm fine. That's just my liver. In the same way, you can't say, yeah, you know, my, my son is addicted or my spouse is suicidal, but I'm fine. You know, that's just them. Like you can't say that. Love, love expands us to, to include what had been outside. And I think that one way to look at the um, the initiation that is being offered to us by the environmental crisis is that it is it's wanting to initiate us into recovering our love for life, for biological life on Earth, for all of life, and for the whole planet as a living being. So it's about love. It's about that. That's that's why I like to say the revolution is love. In your book, Climate, A New Story, you write that, um, you know, these fear-based tactics to get people to pay attention, to make changes, 
don't work. They don't work. We've been doing them for how many decades now? And the environmental crises are getting worse and worse. And you, yeah, you bring this perspective of love in and reconnecting people to the land and the trees and the birds and, you know, really to, to the nature that is us. We are nature and that it's bringing in this love piece and connection that will really start to motivate people to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think that we can be scared into caring past a certain point. We can be scared into caring enough to, uh, guard against bad things happening to ourselves. Um, but that's not enough to have a planet. Like, yeah, in the book, I, I describe the scenario of the concrete world where humans are fine, at least in all of the measurables. We continue to have enough calories per person. We continue to have breathable air, at least indoors, in bubble cities and with AC units and air filters and water filters, like we continue to survive while the rest of the planet continues to die. If we appeal only to self-interest, if we use fear to make people engage in um, whatever, zero carbon lifestyles or whatever we're trying to push, then we could end up with that result. Fear will not keep us from humanity surviving on a dying earth. I mean, after all, like what fear or self-interest motivates you to do is actually make no changes whatsoever and have everybody else make the changes. So I think that if we want a living earth and we want to fulfill our destiny, which in the old story was conquest and domination, and in the new story is service and participation, service to all life on earth, participation in the universes coming more and more alive, then we're going to have to come from a place of love. I'm so grateful for the new book on climate. Uh, I didn't realize I was aching for it as I was getting more and more confused by the two dominant competing narratives around climate change. And I'm, I'm just so curious, what, what need did you see in the culture for this book to be written, for this new perspective to be gifted to the world? I uh, went to Paris for a cop, whatever it was, 22, 21, I don't remember. The big one in Paris. I, I, I keep forgetting the numbers. And, and uh, I was put into a state of despair, not because of climate science and runaway greenhouse gas effects and tipping points and things like that. That wasn't the despair. The despair came from this is the this is entirely the wrong debate. And the furor of the debate and the the um, vehemence with which people are are pushing this issue obscures what we really need to be paying attention to. The and this is true generally, I think, in our society with polarized debates, they, the, the drama of the debate, the spectacle of the debate distracts our attention from what really needs our attention, which neither side is talking about. And so in this case, I was like, I'm not hearing anything about 
the living earth. I'm not hearing anything about the physiology of Gaia. Um, all I'm hearing is about more of the same, more of how do we solve the problem using the same methods that cause the problem, the methods of reductionism, the, me the methods of quantification, the basic template of quantify the problem, find the cause and attack the cause. So we have then something as complex as, as, I mean, if you think, you know, human physiology is complex. I mean, even the physiology of a single cell, to map the me metabolic pathways of a single cell takes a gigantic wall of like diamond print. That's how complex a single cell is. All the more a whole human being, all the more the collective being of Gaia. And to reduce the health of that being to one metric, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, and I'm, I know that, that there's no environmentalist who does that, but that's what is most easily translated into policy. And that's what if, if people are talking about green development, you know, green growth, um, Green New Deal, it's mostly about this one number. What gets left out? The things that get left out are actually the things that will end up being really important in the end. The, the beings that don't necessarily contribute to carbon dioxide, carbon sequestration. Um, like where are the whales and the wolves and the frogs and the sea turtles on that map? Are they important? What's their carbon number? Well, actually, when you look at the world through a living earth perspective, they become very important. Maybe you can only, maybe that importance is only visible when you're looking at water cycles, not carbon cycles which actually, now I'm getting you know more into the book, but I identified a lot of the um, chaos that is ascribed to global warming actually being caused by disruptions to the water cycle through deforestation and soil degradation, development, um, all the things that we think that we could continue as long as we offset their carbon dioxide contribution with something else. So anyway, yeah, so I was at, in Paris and I was like, this conversation has to change. So that's why I called the book Climate a New Story. Um, hesitant even to put the word climate in the title because people see that and they're like, I don't want to read that, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, gosh, there's so much to talk about in the book. I really appreciate that focus on on the water cycle and other things that you talk about because you're right just um reducing it all down to just carbon is not going to move us forward it's not going to move us forward in any way and i'm here in northern california with the wildfires raging every summer and fall i've watched it get worse and worse i've lived here my whole life and you know the focus on what's well, climate change it's um it's you know too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere it's like there has to be more to it you know, so yeah. I think it's more of not enough beavers, mm -hmm. too many dams. Yeah. Um, uh, abusing the water. Uh, if you abuse the water, then you're going to get fires and the, the causal pathway might be obscure and, and multi, um, multi-linear, you know, it's not just this one thing is causing it. 
And, and yeah, and so part of the transition that we are in is a transition away from reductionistic thinking and unilinear thinking into systems thinking, into holistic thinking, life thinking. Um, and I know you're an herbalist, you know, this transition is certainly happening in herbalism too, uh, where there's a certain branch of herbalism that's very much about uh, defining and understanding herbs through their quote active ingredient. Um, you know, let's make a science of herbalism and you can gain some insight into herbs that way, but by reducing them to a data set, you will lose something that doing that makes the holistic relationships less visible, not more. So it's not that you shouldn't use those tools, but you have to be aware that they are only useful to see certain things. And the things that need to be seen the most right now, I think are not visible through the uh, analytic approach. Right, just extracting the medicinal constituents of the herbs and putting mm -hmm. them in their little glass vials, you lose the relationship, you lose the mm -hmm. taste, um, which tells mm -hmm. your body what it's just ingested and your body remembers how to use it. Mm -hmm. um, I really also love just just the words, the um, the organs and tissues of Gaia, you know, that just immediately like makes it land for me. That I mean, I know the earth is a living being. This is something that I you know, live in my daily life, but I guess that um, human body metaphor really helps to like ground it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was another, um, another impetus for writing this book that I'm like, you know, we could cut emissions to zero and the planet will still die a death of organ failure if we continue to degrade its organs. The UN recently predicted that in 50 years, there will be virtually no topsoil left given current rates of erosion. And well, why should we care about that? We could grow all of our food in hydroponics factories or uh, grow meat in these big vats of animal cell tissue, you know, animal cell cultures. Um, and I met a guy in uh, Maine who has developed ways to grow oysters without them ever having to be in the sea. Cafos for oysters. Um, like, you know, we're already, and a lot of these innovations are, are being uh, celebrated as responses to climate change. But in fact, if they are part of the destruction of soil, then they are causes of climate change. That's even true from the carbon lens, because you know what happens. I mean, what happens to all the carbon in the soil when it is exposed to the atmosphere? It oxidizes and becomes carbon dioxide. So, but but from a physiological perspective, the the danger of caused by soil erosion is much much greater. You know, the rains can no longer soak in if you have no soil or dead soil that it's not aerated by mycelial networks and earthworms and gophers and, you know, the root systems, the totality of life, then, then the rain just washes the soil away. It doesn't sink into the aquifers. It doesn't water trees that then 
bringing water vapor back into the air that forms clouds that rain that extends the rainy season. So you have drought and fires in some places. And then you have floods too, because the water can't absorb it all. The, the soil can't absorb all the water. So you have floods and droughts, and then you know that gets blamed on greenhouse gases, gets blamed on quote climate change. But I would say that it is climate change. It's not caused by climate change. It is climate change. And the cause of this particular change in the climate, the the change from extended rainy seasons to drought flood cycles, that is caused by forest abuse and soil abuse, mostly, in my view. Um, and yeah, that's not going to be that's not visible in the current conversation, although it's becoming more visible. Um, there, there are, there, there's a lot of progress, and I, I just wanted to put, you know, um, to accelerate that trend by, because, yeah, like you can support uh, regenerative agriculture and reforestation, motivated by the carbon lens. But from the living earth perspective, these these things become way, way, way more important, like crucial. And then, and essentially what's crucial is let's take care of these beings that we love. So it takes us back to love. Yeah. You always talk about whales, which are my biggest animal love. And it just, it just hits in a certain way, you know, when that love is really there. Um, another super valuable aspect of the book is the look at polarization, and it's not just in climate change, as you know. I'm pretty vocal in the vaccine conversation, and I would say it's maybe even worse there. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I joke like if I if, if I want to alienate half my audience forever, <laughs> all I have to do is take a position on vaccines. Yeah, doesn't matter what position I take. <laughs> right. If I take a position, then half of them. Are out of there yeah but yeah. you you have you know talked about them in very intelligent ways and in some books and podcast interviews but um how can we begin to address this this polarization and especially the need to win no matter what like winning is more important than truth now which is terrifying what what can we as the little people out here do yeah so the problem, yeah, so I ask, like, what does it take for someone to change their mind on an issue, a political issue, when we identify so, so strongly these days, or many people identify really strongly with a certain position? Like looking at the vaccine debate, what would it take for you, say, to admit that you've been wrong all along. And you could ask the same question of somebody on the other side. What would it take? It's not easy because most, if you are a pro vaccine, you're never going to read the best critiques of vaccines. You're going to be in a reality bubble where anything that, that could erode your position, that's going to be kept out. That's like, ooh, that's anti-vax stuff. You know, that's from a suspect website. That's, I mean, even like literally the search engines are going to 
demote that. So you're never going to to come up, you're never going to um, be receptive to that information. You might not ever even see it because of the reality bubble that you're in. And the same thing is often true. I mean, the same thing could be true on the anti-vax side. Like, are you ever going to really read the best of the pro-vaccine material? Um, this, or are you going to merely read your side's interpretation of and critique of the pro-vaccine material? So the so this is another thing that that was really sobering for me. It's like the problem isn't that one side is right and the other side is wrong. The problem is that we have a culture that is impervious to ever being wrong. So where does that come from? How do we bring people to a state of receptivity and open-mindedness? If we do that, then all of these debates will be resolved in alignment with what's true. But if we don't do that, then the truth will never get in. And the side that wins will be the side that is most powerful, that has the most force, not the side that is bringing, that is aligned with what's actually true. So, so looking at the vaccines, yeah, I have my opinions about vaccines and many, many other topics. One reason that I am not vocal about them usually is that I don't think it's the most important issue. The most important issue is why are we so polarized? What keeps us, at least half the people on every issue, in a state of delusion? If we don't address that, then we're just going to, if we win in the vaccine debate, we're going to lose in some other debate because the same dynamics are at play. So that's gotten me to investigate why are we so attached? And I think one reason is the crisis in belonging and sense-making and the um, epidemic, the pandemic in civilization of self-rejection. So how do you gain some acceptance from an in-group and from yourself? Well, one way is to be right about something and to identify, therefore, with the forces of good and right. We get trained for this in school, where you get credit you get rewarded for being right. You get penalized for being wrong. So when your self-image is tied up with being right and having been right all along, you're not going to be very open to any contradictory evidence. In fact, you'll be hostile to it. And that's what keeps us as a society in separate warring camps. In fact, each side needs the other side to achieve their real purpose, which is validation as being on team good in the war against team evil. And so that is what I've been addressing, like as kind of, even if I write or speak, you know, on something else, like I'm always slipping that in there because if that doesn't change, nothing's going to change. So is it like a crisis of real connection? Yeah. Um, because we've been stripped of, of the relationships that make us whole to community and to nature. And you might even find, like if you have a deep experience of connection or you take somebody out on an herb walk even, um, being right doesn't seem as important anymore. Because mm -hmm. you feel like 
you belong here, you're at home. And when you feel at home, secure and loved, it's a lot easier to admit that, yeah, maybe I was wrong this whole time. That's okay, because you love me anyway. I don't need to be right in order to receive love and acceptance and respect. Yeah. So if we have a political culture that's always blaming, condemning, calling out, taking down and critiquing, we're creating conditions where no one will ever change their mind because no one's feeling accepted, no one's feeling safe. And the only option is to overcome them with force. Yeah, so a crisis of connection and empathy. You know, I, you, you've written about this and like just bringing it back to the question, what is it like to be you? And just how easily we can say like, I would never build a wall. I would never do what Donald Trump is doing or anyone, you know, um, without putting ourselves in, as you say, the totality of their circumstances. I think like, well, if I was me in Donald Trump's position, yeah, I wouldn't build the wall. But if I was Donald Trump with his father, his birth, his whole life story, living in New York City, got elected in this crazy way, hell yeah, I would build that wall. Yeah. Maybe you would. Maybe I would. And that that's the question. What is it like to be you that that um, makes so much more creativity available because now you have an option, at least potentially, instead of having to defeat the perpetrator, uh, the bad guy, Donald Trump, you might be able to change the conditions that give birth to who he is and what he's choosing. And maybe you can't change the conditions. You know, maybe there is no option but to run away from somebody or to fight somebody or to physically resist somebody with force. I'm not saying that there's never a time for that. But when we live in a worldview that some people are just bad and irredeemable, no matter what their circumstances, then we have no choice but to fight them. So we limit our options. And that is a recipe for despair in a situation when the where it sure seems like the bad people are in control of everything. If the only only strategy is to beat them at their own game, it's a lose-lose. Probably they're better at their own game than you are. And they will ruthlessly squelch you in your attempt to show them up and tear them down. Unless you become so good at fighting that you can beat them at their own game, But then guess what? Now you're the new dominator. And so you've won the battle, but you've lost the war. So if we are to have any hope at all, we have to ally ourselves with the part of them that doesn't want to do this either. The part of them that is ready to be in love again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the only hopeful strategy. Yeah. We speak to that part and not to the evil, bad opposition that we're seeing in them. Yeah, it's in how we see them. Yeah. You know, like, imagine if we could all carry the seeing of of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, <laughs> for example. You know, when he said, I like you mm-hmm. just because you're you, mm-hmm. because you're special. <laughs> he wasn't He wasn't repeating a mantra. He actually was seeing, like, and he could call forth the beauty in almost any human being. Yeah. 
I mean, I, yeah. I felt that when he said it to me through the TV screen when I was yeah. a kid in the 80s, you know? And when I think about it now, I, I honestly tear up, like remembering yeah. how he made me feel. Did you see the documentary about him? I am going to as soon oh as possible. Oh my God, like everybody in the theater was crying. I bet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's people out there who, who, who do this, you know, who, yeah. who, who practice reverence. That's really what it's all about. Yeah. It's reverence. If you hold people in reverence, then you are a walking invitation for them to live up to the reverence that you see them as. Right. I, I was going to bring it to children before you brought it, Mr. Rogers, too. Like that that's what we do when raising children. We don't say, you are bad because you did that. You know, we say, Oh, I, I like it when you do that. Thank you so much. You know, it makes me feel so good. And I feel really proud of you. And just bathing them in in the resonance of the highest potential that you see for them. And then they like grow into that. Yeah. Although there's a fine line there between um uh acknowledging uh, and invoking what their best impulses and manipulating them with praise. Oh, yes. Because that can also be um, a, a, a form of conditional acceptance that actually makes them not feel safe and always seeking praise because associating love with the praise. So that can be manipulative too, if you're not careful. Yes, but yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, I'll put some resources in the show notes on that too, for any parents who that just piqued their interest. Um, I'm glad that we're talking about child rearing. You have four sons. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and I was so thrilled looking through your website and your articles that you interviewed Joseph Chilton Pierce back in the day. Um, he's a hero of mine. And um, I, I remember something that he wrote in one of his books, which is the highest expression of human love and creativity is mentoring the next generation. And, you know, I've heard you talk about how we basically all have trauma in this culture. It can be personal or a legacy trauma of living in a culture that perpetuates the story of separation. How can we, like, raise our children to minimize the impact of that trauma? Like, what has been important to you as a parent? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm sure that I've passed on a lot of my legacy trauma to my children my, I think that if you pass on even just a little less than you received, then you're giving a good gift to the future. We're only able to, to cease passing it on when we, when we become aware of it and aware of the patterns that um, are, are associated with the trauma. Um, and so one of them is you know, the conditional acceptance and rejection through punishment and praise. Um, you know, a lot of them are, are societal. Like, I think that it is traumatic for children to be confined indoors and to, to go outside and it's an alien realm where there's no other kids and, and no engagement with nature, where nature is just a spectacle and not a hands-on um, hands relationship. Like that's, that in a way it's like stunning to the human spirit and that's hard to do anything about. I mean, you can shove your kids. I tried, you know, and my older ones were little, go outside and play. But it wasn't like when I was a kid and there were other kids outside and that's where the action was happening. All the other kids were indoors um, by the 2000s. 
they, they were on screens or they were being carted off to various organized activities. So how do I shield them against that trauma, the trauma of alienation, um, of loneliness? I, I didn't know how to do that. You know, we, we, we do our best. And then there are the uh, patterns that we only become aware of through our mistakes. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, we try to make amends and apologize and, and heal the damage. And that experience of, of um, error and apology becomes the legacy that the next generation can carry forward and not have to repeat those mistakes. So our, when our mistakes are followed by healing, um, by regret, by apology, by amend making, by mending, then they become a gift to the future and part of the uh, reunion, the age of reunion. Um, you write about this so beautifully in The Ascent of Humanity. And my favorite chapter was the one on control, like our obsession with control and um, and obsession with safety. And so, yeah, anyone who's curious about what you're just speaking about with raising children in that paradigm, it's really beautiful in there. But the part that really captured my attention was the war on germs. Um, mm -hmm. I sometimes, you know, kind of joke that autoimmune issues are the new infectious disease. Can you just kind of elucidate for us what the germ theory of disease gets wrong and why there has been an explosion in autoimmune conditions? I mean, I'm no expert on this. When I wrote that book, that was, you know, almost, well, 15 years ago, I wrote that um, when this information was not so well known. I think there's a lot of people who could tell you a lot more about that than I could. But basically, um, Understanding that most infections are symptoms of the conditions that that bring the infection in uh, at this time, at least that may not have been true in the great in the age of the great epidemics. Um, those those the age of the great epidemics. There's a whole other reason why that had to happen, but but right now, like colds and flus and and um, you know, most of the diseases people get, most of the infectious diseases are the result of body conditions that bring those diseases in. One of those body conditions being the depletion of our, of our inner ecology. That, that, that is, you know, our, our bodies are supposed to be a community of life. That's what makes us strong. So when the body ecology has been depleted through antibiotics and um, uh, other, other pharmaceuticals, um, and also like excessive hand washing, excessive sanitation, you know, excessive hygiene, like we're not getting a rich ecosystem in our bodies anymore. And so just like a denuded landscape is, gets quickly overtaken by weeds, a denuded body gets overtaken by opportunistic infections that colonize everything. Um, and then 
I guess like the autoimmunity part, I mean, this is like a hugely complex issue. But I think that when we don't um, encounter the challenges uh, that are normal for childhood, such as chickenpox, measles, and mumps, um, then, and, 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 oh boy, so now I'm going to get into trouble for taking a position on vaccines, but, but, you know, when, when we don't have those challenges, the immune system is like, like, hey, I'm not, I'm supposed to be doing something. Um, I guess I must not be sensitive enough. Or when we get vaccinated and, and it looks like we're getting a disease. So the immune system is, is getting ready, but it's only a, um, there's like nothing for the cell mediated immune system to grab onto and attack. So it gets more and more primed for action. And then it can end up, uh, it can result in allergies, you know, where, where it's just so hypersensitive that it finds something, but then yeah, it's so complicated, you know, and we can go into leaky gut, you know, we can go into all these different things that I was more conversant with 20 years ago than I am now. I'm not an expert on this. Um, I, I've, I've, kind of abstracted it and I've taken steps back from it and I'm more just like in the theoretical place of, of we got to end the war on life. Right. Yeah. And the othering of, you know, this, this idea that, that health and progress and well-being comes through increasing separation and increasing control rather than community. Yeah thinking that we can control nature with our antibiotics, with our vaccines. And there's all this, um, all these consequences that we didn't foresee rather than just being in relationship with the vast microcosm of our inner landscape. Right. And it's not that there's never a time to use antibiotics. Like if you are on the verge of acute sepsis or something like that, like they could save your life, but it's kind of like the political thing of, of when you, when you identify somebody as an irremediable bad guy, um, then you have no choice but to attack it. So if we have a, a vision of, of bacteria and viruses as these competitors, as these self-interested competitors that infect you, then we have no, like from that lens, the only rational response is to try to kill them. Like we are seeing them when we see life as fundamentally in competition with all other life, then it is a war of each against all. And so the conventional medicine, the, the germ theory, the, 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 you know, the conventional medical view makes total sense inside of that paradigm of biology that sees all of life as a headlong competition. And that sits in the story of separation. What is a self? We're separate. So when we understand that we're not separate, that ecology works through the the contribution of all beings to the welfare of all beings, then we can understand the body that way too. And we can we can even ask questions as why am I getting this infection? What is what are the conditions? You know, it's just like asking that about Donald Trump. Like what is this a symptom of? What are the underlying conditions that are causing me to get strep throat three or four times a year or something like that? Is it because this bad guy got in again and we got to build a wall to keep it out? 
or is it a symptom of something? That, that's the, the change in, in paradigm. Yes, thank you. Um, let's. I just want to move briefly into sacred economics, which you've really gone into on many other podcasts. And of course, people can read the book. Um, but one, so you not only identify like what's wrong with the world economic system, and I love to hearing you once explain that the reason you came to write this book is because of all the world's problems you were thinking about when you went back and back and back, they all go back to money. They all mm-hmm. go back to money. And that is so fucking true. Um, but you also lay out solutions, like very clear next steps forward. And one of them is the gift, the gift economy. And you practice this on your website. You have a number of beautiful online courses and people can pay what they want, including zero. Mm-hmm. Was this like a big leap for you to make that decision? Was it just like, oh, of course, that's how I'm doing it. And like, how does that look from the back end? Well, it just, it originated when I um, wrote The Ascent of Humanity and and I kept putting it online uh, chapter by chapter, you know, as I was putting the, fu- as I was putting the final touches on it. And then I, published it or pretended that it was published. Actually, I self-published it. Uh, and, and I'm like, okay, well, now I guess I better take down the at least some or most of the material online because otherwise, who would buy it? And I almost went to do that, but it didn't feel right. You know, I'm like, but I wrote this so people would read it. Why would I do something that makes people less able to read it? That just doesn't make sense. And it just felt bad to take this beloved website that I painstakingly coded myself and just take it down. I couldn't make myself do it. Plus, like part of the book is a critique of intellectual property. And that fed into it too. It's like, is this actually mine to enclose and sell? Where did I get this book from? It, it is um, the result of hundreds of books that I've read and conversations that I've had and and thought forms that are circulating in the noosphere. Um, I'm, I'm just the scribe for a book that wanted to be written. I don't really own it. And so I feel that way about a lot of, of quote, my work. I mean, it's not really my work, you know. Um, it is work that I am serving it just doesn't feel good, you know? So, but I, I definitely like um, doing the work and I want to be supported. I, I And in the current context, that means that I need money. So, and people are grateful for the work. So there should be a channel for them to express the gratitude and to pay what feels good for them. So that's that's the that's the way I do it with online courses and um, most of my live events. But I'm not like a purist about it, you know. Like sometimes I'll speak at a, you know, like I spoke in Berlin or whatever, you know. And there's some organization that's renting the venue and they're setting it up and they're selling tickets, you know. I, I will declare my preference, but. Um, and I tend to want to work with people who are open 
to doing things by gift and to stepping into trust like that. Um, but, you know, occasionally I, you know, speak at conferences and people pay me or, in fact, I, if I do that, I want to be paid at the highest level to do honor to the work, you know, like I don't want to be second class because it's not that I have doubts that, that it's valuable. So oh, you don't pay me because, you know, this is second rate stuff. It's not about that. It's not about lack of self-worth or confidence in, in the value of what I'm offering. Um, I mean, I even sometimes, you know, will be on an online thing that somebody else creates and, you know, I'll be like, yeah, we can use your business model. But generally speaking, I like to do things by gift. And do you find that it works? Like when people buy your online course, I'm sure there's plenty doing it at zero, which is what I would have had to do it many times in my past. And then are there people who like vastly overpay because they can and they have a sense of gratitude and they want to help cover costs for people who can't? Um, sometimes people overpay. It's rare. Uh, probably about half, about half the people pay zero. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's because they genuinely can't afford it. Like there have been times in my life where I would not have been able to pay even $50 for an online course. Um, and so I'm really happy. And sometimes they write to me and they thank me for, for making it available like that. Um, and then there's also people who are probably like, oh, I'll give it a try. You know, anyway, I don't have to pay, so why not give it a try? Uh, I prefer that, like, when people do that, there's no investment, there's no buy-in. And they may not really take it very seriously and they don't bring a a high expectation and good energy into it. So that's the downside of offering it by gift. Um, I'm still experimenting, I guess you could say, to try to find out what works. There, there needs to be some kind of entrance ritual for mm. people to take it seriously as a mm. course. Yeah, like how when you yeah. have people like sign a form saying, I will do this, even when they're not actually obligated to do it in any way, they're much more likely right. to do it. Yeah, just the ritual right. of it. Right. Um, so I'm taking your course, Metaphysics and Mystery, and mm -hmm. I love I love that getting into the big stuff. You know, the things that used to literally keep me awake at night when I was a small child. Um, and one of the things that you said in that is that the individual is a holographic map of the universe unfolding, which is a very big statement. What does that mean? Hmm. The individual is a holographic map of the universe unfolding. Uh, I'm not sure is the context that the individual is unfolding or the universe is unfolding. <laughs> I think the universe. I mean, to me, this feels like just yeah. a larger extension of the story of interbeing. Yes, yes. Yeah. So basically the, the um, transformations, the evolution that we go through as individuals mirror a cosmic process. They're not separate. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty abstract. Um, but it seems really important and helpful to me too. Yeah. How has that been helpful for you? That I'm part of a bigger story, you know, mm -hmm. that my problems and issues and pains are not just my own, are not just my fault also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, one thing that I'm not sure if that is, if, it, if it's in that course or not, but it, um, I'm 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 brewing a new book right now, and one of the things that's probably going to go in there is this idea that every every storyline needs to be told and lived for the next phase of human and cosmic evolution to begin. So we have to play out all of the dramas that the story of separation gives birth to. And that this marks a completion of a, of a phase for humanity and um, you know, and, and on a, whatever, a galactic level or something, um, here's this planet, Earth, that has gone through a particularly difficult storyline um, and made it through to the other side. And if that happens, a new chapter is opened up for cosmic evolution because I say this in one of my books, no planet has ever gone this deep into separation and made it through. Well, um, I just appreciate so much the way that you, you make things make sense to me, things I've always kind of thought about but never dove into, things I didn't think other people thought about, um, you know, things that I want to be thinking about and talking about. And I really appreciate that you just go there. And I think I heard you say that um, like you do have a degree, but you didn't do like extreme training in any of the the things you talk about, you're just like a really intelligent person who is willing to say like, well, my life path is sitting down and writing books about these things and then talking to people about them and pushing ideas forward. Is that, is that accurate that you're just been kind of like self motivated in all this? Well, originally I was motivated by a, by an inquiry, uh, a question, which is why are things so fucked up? You know, what's what's the origin of the wrongness in the world? So there wasn't any obvious academic path to discovering that for me. I studied mathematics and philosophy, which is where the answers were supposed to be found on the deepest level. And I didn't find them there. And in fact, I became really disenchanted with academic philosophy in particular. So it wasn't like I had a conscious program of, okay, I'm going to gather all the knowledge that I can that is outside the walls of academia, but out there in the world somewhere. It was more of just a um, discontent, um, almost a rebelliousness that I just couldn't make myself go along with the program. It just was repugnant. You know, going to graduate school is repugnant. I'm like, I just can't make myself go through this, this bullshit anymore. So I uprooted myself. I lived in Taiwan for nine years and just never put the question down, though. And, I, and when you hold a question long enough, it will always bear a result. The result may not be the answer to the question. In my case, it wasn't only the answer to the question. It was information that invalidated the question. That's often what happens if you hold a question faithfully. You'll, you'll eventually transcend the question. 
you realize that it wasn't the right question. And it maybe gets replaced by another question. Or you have an experience that renders it irrelevant. But it's a powerful practice mm -hmm. to hold to hold a question. Even like you don't even necessarily have to put it into words. If you don't put it into words, you might not call it a question, you might call it a quest. And if holding it with fealty, with loyalty, it exerts a tug on, on the universe. And then to hold it without and without accepting the booby prizes that it will also attract, like the false answers. And be like, yeah, you know, that actually doesn't quite meet it. You know, like the, for me, like they had, so the question was, what is the origin of the wrongness in the world? And so one of the answers that was brought to me was, well, it's capitalism, you know, and then associated with that, there's like a whole Marxist worldview that explains everything. And I engaged that for a little while, but I'm like, no, it doesn't really add up. There's, there's, the, even if I go deeply into it, the question is still there maybe met in every rational intellectual way, but not really met. Uh, and so it, it, it's actually the loyalty is to the discomfort. It's to, to allow the discomfort to operate on you. That's, yeah, that, I guess that's my uh, intellectual practice. And that's what keeps you from being on either extreme end of whatever conversation you're having. Um, so thank you, Charles, for holding the questions and <laughs> waiting for the universe to feel the tug and tug back at you with some answers that you share with all of us. Um, yeah, you're at charleseisenstein.org. Is there anything else you want to tell the good people about? Uh, no, you know, if, if people are resonant, they can uh, easily find find me on the interwebs. Yeah, many podcast interviews, including Oprah's um, books. I think six books. They're wonderful. Yeah, you're out there. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Amber. I really, uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. I know we kind of went wide, um, but yeah. there's so much to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Charles. And thank you, everyone, for listening. There is so much more that I want to talk about here at the end. And almost all of these subjects are things I've wanted to bring to the podcast before. And as I've said so many times, time is just so limited. I cannot talk about everything that I would love to talk about on this show. But when it happens like this, when things get brought up in conversation organically, then just it's the perfect excuse for me to spend some time recording an outro and following up and fleshing out some thoughts. So I am going to talk about the idea that this very false narrative that we have in our culture, especially around medicine, um, that we can outsmart nature and the consequences of that kind of thinking. 
I'm going to talk about how important challenges to the immune system are, as Charles briefly mentioned, um, for developing true, robust, lifelong immunity, getting into the science and the ancient wisdom behind that. And I'm going to talk about polarization, especially in the vaccine conversation in which I am so deeply embedded. And then finally talk about uh, praise and talking to our children. Um, you know, you, you heard what Charles and I talked about in the conversation, so I'm just going to expand on that. And through all of these subjects, I'm going to, of course, give um, further reading and resources, which will all be in the show notes. So yeah, we have this idea. It's been dominant for at least 100 years, getting stronger and stronger, especially around the invention of antibiotics in medicine, in science, that we can outsmart nature. And this is just verifiably untrue. Um, we, The human brain is not more intelligent than nature, which another word for that would be the vital life force or just evolution. Um, nature's somewhat problematic word because it implies that we're separate from nature and we're not. But I'm probably going to use that word and you'll know what I mean. So antibiotics were hailed as the pinnacle of human achievement, right? Man triumphs over mean old mother nature. There were pronouncements that we were going to completely eradicate infectious disease during the you know peak of the antibiotic, I don't know what to call it, um, the beginning of the antibiotic age. And we talk more about this in episode eight with Stephen Herod Buner, and you can also read his book, Herbal Antibiotics. Um, this just fascinates me so much, like infectious disease fascinates me. And the lens of modern medicine fascinates me and like true healing based on ancient ancestral principles fascinates me and immunity fascinates me and vaccines fascinate me and antibiotics fascinate me. So as we all know, though, what those people making those triumphant pronouncements did not realize is that these antibiotics were going to push the bacteria to evolve, to outsmart the antibiotics that were trying to kill them. And the word antibiotic literally means against life, anti-life, right? Bio, biology, life. So what evolution does is outmaneuvers the pressures and stressors thrown at an organism. That's what life does. That is what life is. That's what the vital life force and the intelligence imbued in all things is and does, is it evolves, it outsmarts what is thrown at it. And so of course that's what happened. And like, you know, it's fine that that wasn't foreseen, but we now know that it's what's happening. And um, like many pharmaceutical companies that have just been trying to outsmart the antibiotics that are outsmarting their, um, their, the bacteria, the bacteria that are outsmarting the antibiotics. And so now the pharmaceutical companies are trying to outsmart the bacteria that are outsmarting their antibiotics. That's what I meant to say. Um, they've just had to shelve their like new, better antibiotics because they realize it's not going to work. It's not going to work. We can't outsmart nature. And so, you know, Many, many hundreds of thousands of people have died from um, from 
antibiotic-resistant bacteria that have mutated into more virulent forms. So sure, of course, antibiotics have saved lives and they've taken lives. And we have like fucked with mother nature on a deep level and it had consequences that we did not intend. And so the same thing is happening with vaccines. Vaccines are pushing some, maybe all of the pathogens that we have vaccines targeted towards um, to evolve. So as far as I know, pertussis was the first to really be widely recognized as mutating as a result of the vaccine. Um, Bordetella pertussis is the scientific binomial for whooping cough um, pathogen, and it is mutated into Bordetella parapertussis. You can uh, Google the, or don't use Google. I don't use Google anymore. You can use Ecosia or another um, search engine that is not actively censoring um, <laughs> natural health websites and news. So you can listen to the recent episode with Dr. Kelly Brogan to hear more about that. But you can look for this paper. It's called Pertussis Resurgence, Waning Immunity and Pathogen Adaptation. Or you can also search for Pertussis Dr. Cherry, because Dr. Cherry has published many studies on um, what's going on with pertussis and its evolving nature and how the DTaP vaccine really does not help protect against its spread in any way and actually makes people more susceptible to it the more DTaP doses they get. Um, pneumococcal is evolving and measles is evolving. So for that, you can search for the paper entitled Antigenic Drift Defines a New D4 Subgenotype of Measles Virus. And that was published in the American Society for Microbiology Journal of Virology. So I'm not going to go into everything that is written in all these papers. Again, you can look yourself, but um, suffice it to say that pathogens are mutating because that's what life does. That's what life does. You throw something at them like an antibiotic or like a vaccine and the vital intelligence of nature goes, all right, how are we going to react? How are we going to adapt? How are we going to respond? So I think about this and I talk about this because, you know, I mean, the whole vaccine debate is so complex, so nuanced. I've said a thousand times that I'm asking for just a rational national conversation around this. And this is one piece that so often gets left out is um, the unintended consequences of, again, fucking with nature at this deep of a level. Um, so yes, vaccines have saved lives. There have been times when a person got vaccinated um, their temporary immunity hadn't yet worn off. They came in contact with the pathogen they were vaccinated against, and they didn't get the full-blown infection because their body recognized it and was able to fight it off quickly. That has happened. And we are pushing these pathogens to mutate into more virulent forms, and we are shifting the disease burden within the population. So it used to be that children got these infections and they were generally mild, especially when there were no nutrient deficiencies. Um, for almost every infectious disease that we know of, there's at least one very important nutrient that if not present fully in the system will make the infection much worse and make death and complications much more likely. With measles, as most people know now, it's vitamin A. Um, so... 
generally, these are mild childhood illnesses. We now vaccinate against chickenpox. I had chickenpox as a kid. It sucked. Um, I had an itchy rash. I remember my mom giving me an oatmeal bath that felt like heaven. And then I got through it and it was fine. And when my parents were kids, everyone got the measles and it was fine. And then you have lifelong immunity to that illness afterward. And then you have a population of adults pretty much all of whom had these infections as children who are all immune. And so they have true herd immunity. Then the infants coming in have immunity through their mother's placenta and blood for their first few years of life and um, breast milk. And then they would get the infection, such as measles, and then they'd be immune for life. So we're protecting the very young and we're protecting the elderly who, of course, have a hard time dealing with these infections by having an adult population have true immunity. And so what happens with vaccines, because they are temporary, is that almost every adult in America is unvaccinated or they've been vaccinated, but they're no longer immune. So they're vaccinated, but they are not immune. Um, So it's just, I mean, it's such cognitive dissonance in our culture when we talk about how every child must be vaccinated to have herd immunity. But then we ignore the fact that almost every adult is walking around without vaccine-induced immunity and without true immunity because the vaccines were off and we never got the infections as children to give us true lifelong immunity. So we are putting young babies at risk because there's no true herd immunity among the adults that they're hanging out with. And then, of course, the children that they're hanging out with could be um, shedding the live viruses if they've been recently vaccinated. And then older adults also are more at risk because there's no true herd immunity left. So we've shifted the disease burden within the population. So those are just two of the ways that... um, nature outsmarts humans and the human mind. So now we have a situation where most adults have no immunity at the same time as we are pushing the pathogens to mutate. So yes, there's been these benefits from vaccines and antibiotics, and there has been these very real risks that we just don't talk about enough. So we talk about risk versus benefit analysis for vaccines. We're usually talking about for an individual child. You know, we need to do genetic testing and think about their epigenetic expression and their lifestyle and, you know, which child is more likely to be injured from a vaccine and which are not. But we also need to have that risk benefit conversation at a larger societal level, taking into account all the things I just talked about. Okay, so there's that. And there's there's so much there. You know, there, it's so complex and so nuanced. And these are just the things that I tend to think about, the things that I am aware of from my decade and a half of research and thinking about all of these topics that pertain to this. All right, let's talk about how important it is for the immune system to be challenged in childhood, especially. So something Charles briefly mentioned when I asked about autoimmunity. And so there's two aspects I want to look at here. One is the science around how important various childhood infections are for preventing later chronic illness in life. And another is just that this is a really 
ancient human idea. Parents the world over have always noticed that after their children get through an illness, they have some sort of developmental leap. I've seen it in my girls time and time again, even after just the common cold, um, especially after anything that includes fever and just a lot of rest. They will have a new physical milestone or you just see their mental development and like their presence of mind shift and reach a new level of consciousness. And it's so beautiful to watch. I love it so much. And, you know, what do we do in our culture? We try to shut down illness. We give the antibiotics right away, even when it's a virus, you guys, um, even when it's a virus, which the cold and flu are a virus, the doctors know antibiotics are ineffective because they work against bacteria, not viruses, but they will prescribe them anyway because the parents are asking or because they know that the parents just need to feel like I did something about this. Um, and then we give fever reducers, Tylenol, we suppress symptoms. That is our approach to all illness and disease in our culture is just suppress the symptom. Don't worry about what's underneath it. Don't look for the lessons inherent in what this illness is bringing to you. Just squash it and move on. Drink your coffee, watch your TV, keep being productive, keep consuming. And so... Um, it's just, this is something Rudolf Steiner wrote about really beautifully, the founder of Waldorf Schools and Biodynamic Farming and Anthroposophy. Anthroposophy, yeah. Um, is, you know, just how important it is to challenge the immune system when children are little. And he even had like specific correlations. This disease will change this part of them. This disease will change that part of them. And I'm not sure how accurate that is, especially because our kids don't get those diseases anymore. So we don't, we can't observe that. Um, but it's a beautiful idea that makes sense to me and that I have seen in my own kids many times. So not only is this an old idea that countless parents can attest to, but the science also really bears out the idea that when the immune system is able, is allowed to process certain infections, especially in childhood, it is bolstered and strengthened for life and can better deal with chronic disease throughout the rest of life. So I'm going to read to you some titles from a book called Miller's Review of Critical Vaccine Studies, 400 Important Scientific Papers Summarized for Parents and Researchers. It's by Neil Z. Miller with a forward by Dr. Gary Goldman. And this is one of those books that was really uh, pivotal for me. You know, just it was in my chiropractor's office and I saw it there for years. And as I'm going to talk about soon with the polarization, um, there was like a decade at least where I was really open to both sides of the vaccine argument. I was super open to whatever the truth ended up being, you know? And so finally I decided to buy this book and take it home. And it just, you know, it was a huge nudge towards where I stand now, which I'm sure you already know, even if this is your first time listening to this podcast. Um, okay. So the what I'm going to read to you is the title of um, that sort of summarizes what the study says, and it's 
way too many studies and it would be way too much work for me to put this all in the show notes as a link, which is normally what I would like to do. So if you want to follow up on these, you really just need to get this book in your hands. It's absolutely worth it. Um, And, you know, these come from peer-reviewed scientific journals. And the name of the journals are in here, but they're abbreviated and I don't know what they all mean. Otherwise, I would read them out along with every summary title, but I'm not going to do that. Get the book if you want. Um, And I will have a link to the book in the show notes, of course. So a mumps infection, but not mumps vaccination, protects protects women against ovarian cancer. Women with prior infections of mumps, measles, rubella, or chickenpox are significantly less likely to develop ovarian cancer. Adults with previous infections of influenza, measles, mumps, or chickenpox are less likely to develop malignant melanoma. And like in this case, there's two different studies that show the same thing, and that's the case with a lot of these um, summary titles that I'm reading. Infectious diseases, including chickenpox and influenza, significantly reduce the risk of developing a brain tumor. Wild chickenpox infections protect against brain tumors. Numerous studies confirm that acute infectious diseases protect against several types of cancer. Measles and other childhood infections protect against cancer of the lymph. Lymph cancer is more likely in adults who were not infected with measles, mumps, or rubella during childhood. Hodgkin's disease is more likely in adults who were not infected with pertussis, measles, mumps, chickenpox, or influenza during childhood. Early exposure to infectious disease significantly reduces the risk of childhood leukemia. I mean, I'm skipping a lot of these, you guys. Like, there's tons on the lymph cancer, tons on the leukemia. I'm trying not to completely bore you, but just to give you an idea of the actual science that exists on this. So much about cancer. There's so, so much about cancer. Um, Okay, I'm going to be done there. Check that book out. Um, So that's, again, when we're talking about, like, the big picture, public health, um, it's this is such an important piece that we just don't talk about. We don't want to talk about it. You know, the whole point is conquering, killing infectious disease, triumphing over Mother Nature. Forget what that takes away from us in the process. Okay, so you can um, also learn a lot more about this in the book by Dr. Thomas Cowan called Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness. Because there it is, the changing nature of childhood illness. Vaccines have changed the way illness expresses itself in the public. Less infectious disease? Sure. More chronic disease? Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the polarization and... um, you know, Charles' challenge to me in a way of what would it take to change your mind and how much from the other side do you take in? So, you know, I follow a lot of people who are aligned with me on the vaccine issue and on Instagram especially, and some of them are so harsh against people who vaccinate. And it is such a turnoff to me. I do not feel that way at all. I completely understand why people vaccinate, given the information that we are given. And um, I believe that all of us are making the decision that we think is best for our child, which is like 
I ain't going to be mad at you if that's what you're doing, you know? But some people, oh my God, just the, the vitriol and the cruelty with which they talk about the other side. And of course, this is much worse from the quote, pro-vaxxers. Um, truly hate the words pro-vax and anti-vax because they just, you know, deepen this polarization. Um, but I, you know, no matter where you stand in this argument, you've probably noticed that it is the kind of hate speech that isn't allowed anywhere else in polite society. You know, obviously a lot of people are engaging in hate speech, but it's absolutely okay to talk to parents who have vaccine injured children or who are questioning vaccination or asking for a rational public conversation around the subject. It's totally fine to tell them that you hope their children die, um, that they're disgusting. I just, I can't even believe the things people have said to me and that I've seen people say to other people. When I did my first post on vaccines on Instagram, the comments were so insane. And I remember a quote, pro-vax friend of mine, I have many of them, um, commenting like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I can't believe how much worse the rhetoric coming from the pro-vaxxers are, is. This is like, I'm embarrassed to be aligned with this side. Um, so not <laughs> not trying to otherwise, other eyes or further the polarization, just really pointing out that it's so extreme on the vaccine issue. And I just, I can't believe the things I see people say, like every day on social media, I cannot believe the cruelty I'm seeing from both sides directed at each other when really what everyone wants at the heart of this is children to be as safe and healthy as possible. So that's something that Charles writes about in the climate book is, okay, so on this issue, climate and any polarizing issue, let's look at the um, similar goals that people have and the similar implicit underlying agreements. And so I really appreciate that framework because I try to be like a voice of reason and compassion and nuance in the middle of the vaccine debate, even though I, I feel very strongly on one side of it. I don't want to otherwise other eyes people and just create enemies. It It's it will never get us anywhere. Like if you really care about moving forward on any subject that you're passionate about, making the other human beings on the other side of whatever issue it is, your enemy does nothing to move the conversation forward. So, okay. Um, So I try to be, you know, rational about it and somewhere in the middle and have compassion, but it's not always easy. And I'm definitely not saying that I've always um, been able to do that well. So, you know, uh, Charles asked, what would it take to change your mind? And this is something I think about a lot in in all sorts of um, subjects, because I love changing my mind. I love proving myself wrong. This is like a challenge that I started setting for myself years ago, especially speaking about things in public like I do. Like, And this was years before I spoke about vaccines. Um, like, I remember, I think it was herbalist Jim McDonald in an interview I read once saying, like, if I am not, you know, consistently finding out that I was wrong about something, then, like, I'm being dishonest. And 
I just love that. And I've tried to go with that. And I hope that we can all do that. But it's hard. It's so hard. So we know now that like psychological pain registers in the brain similarly to or maybe just the same as physical pain. It is truly painful to have psychological pain. And being wrong is like super psychologically painful for us. Um, You know, I want, I really wonder like the nature versus culture aspect of this. And I want to think like, maybe it's just because we're so polarized that we just have to be right. But then I think about like little kids and they really don't like being wrong a lot of the time. Um, And, you know, different kids have different personalities and different levels of this. But like I knew one child who she just could not be wrong. She would literally be looking at like a black piece of paper and be like, no, it's white. It's white. Because she had already, you know, conjectured that earlier in the argument and was proved wrong. And it's just like, no, no, it is. It just is, you know. And like, I mean, that's a stupid example I was given. And obviously, that's not what actually happened. But like, there's clearly something in the human that really does not like being wrong. Um, It's very hard. And this is where cognitive dissonance comes in, where you are hit with a piece of information that like shatters what you believe and you have to somehow convince yourself that that piece of information is false, even if it's like right in front of you and clear as day and part of you knows it's true. Um, And confirmation bias, also this thing we do where anything we see that confirms what we already believe is what we pay attention to. We're like, see, see, it's true, it's true. And then when information comes to us that contradicts what we believe, we just like block it out, pretend it never happened or, you know, somehow rationalize it away. Um, So I just try to be really aware of those things in myself. And like I said earlier, there were about 10 years where I was really open to all sides of the vaccine debate. And even though I hadn't vaccinated my oldest at that point, that was really based on instinct and some things I had read and some stories of other people, personal stories of their injury or their children's injury. But I was like, maybe I'm wrong. You know, we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see in time what the science bears out. And I'm totally open to vaccinating her if things change. And, you know, it's not like I spent all 10 of those years really researching it. Not at all, actually. Um, but I would read anything that came across my way because I thought it was interesting. And then when my second was born 10 years later, three years ago now, started looking into it a little bit more, but you know, both girls were bored at home. It wasn't like staring down at me. What are you going to do when the hospital staff comes at your baby with this needle? And so it's really the legislation in the last year, 2019 here in California that got me super duper, duper interested in this issue. And like, okay, I'm really going to look at the science. I'm going to look at everything there is out there. I'm going to engage in arguments with people on Instagram. So that's one way that I um, try to keep open to arguments from the other side, even though at this point, absolutely nothing would change my mind. I have read enough science. I have heard enough stories. I know enough about the way the immune system works. I know enough about the threat of new, um, unknown to us, mutated diseases coming through the population that I want myself and my children to have very robust immune systems to meet if that happens that have not been altered by vaccines. Um, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on about the reasons why I am aligned where I am on this issue. 
But I do like to listen to what the other side is saying. I do like to know, is there anything to it? You know, is there somewhere, somewhere kind of in the middle we can meet? You know, what if we truly could make vaccines safe? What if we could really get the aluminum and the formaldehyde and the aborted, um, you know, fetal cells and the monkey kidney cells? What if we could get those out of there? If we got the preservatives out, if we could find different cultures to grow the antigens on, um, and if we could somehow do without the adjuvants altogether, then like, sure, you know, (laughs) most quote anti-vaxxers feel the same way. It's not the antigens that are the problem in the vaccines. It's everything else. And it's the, of course, like insane childhood schedule that we're working on. Um, so yeah, for me, it's just, it, it really is a practice to try to not exist solely in my own echo chamber. And I think that's almost impossible if you're using social media in any way, which I definitely am. But I try to stay open. I try to stay open. I try to see where my own cognitive dissonance is coming in. Um, as I said earlier, I have very many friends who have vaccinated their children. Um, I actually don't know if any of them would really identify like my in real life friends as pro-vaccine because I think most of them really see the problems with vaccines and with the current schedule. Um, but we all like talk about this in person. For me, this isn't just a online argument. Um, this really has consequences in my real life with plenty of friends with unvaccinated children, plenty of friends with vaccinated children, and plenty of friends somewhere in between, you know, started vaccinating, saw the results, and stopped. Um, so I don't hate pro-vaxxers. I None of my pro-vax friends hate me. It's so possible to hold differing ideas from other people and still love them and still be able to have a conversation in which you both learn things and see the other person's perspective. Um, okay. I think that's what I have to say about that. So let's talk about to the brief thing that got brought up in this conversation with Charles, which is around praise and like over praising kids. If you're a parent, you've probably come across this idea and hopefully some writings or podcasts on this. But if not, um, Alfie Cohn has plenty of books, wonderful books on parenting, but the two that seem to most pertain to this are Unconditional Parenting and Punished by Rewards. And then there's also Janet Lansbury, who has a great website. And I think she has a podcast too. So she really talks about, you know, the issues around too much praise. Um, I'm also going to link to just a brief article. If you just want like a few more paragraphs on this issue, maybe don't want to do a full podcast or book, I'll put this in the show notes. But it says, you know, children can become hooked on outside evaluation and praise and begin to doubt their own internal self-evaluation. Why should I do this? What's in it for me? What do I get if I don't do X, Y, or Z? Who's watching? You know, so those are all really valid. And what I meant in my conversation with Charles, and hopefully it's somewhat clear, was not doing that. Rather, when there's a behavior that I would like to change, instead of harping and getting really negative and just putting a ton of attention on the negative behavior. When I see the positive side of that same behavior, that's what I give the attention to. And that's what I feed, you know, with um, gratitude, 
maybe not so much praise, like great job doing that, but thank you. You know, when, when you do that, it helps me be able to do this and it makes it easier for the whole family to do this. And just explaining the consequences of when you do that, this is how it affects things and doing it with love and with a smile, you know, and same thing with the negative behaviors. I'll explain like, okay, when you do that, this is what happens. Um, without like you are bad, you know, and without you are good when they do the good thing. Um, the idea behind unconditional parenting in that book is just, you know, you absolutely love that child, no matter the behavior, no matter what they do. And so that's what I meant too, is just like, I hold my children in love. That is the vibration of the home and the family and every interaction I have with them, no matter what's going on. I need to add one more thought to the piece on polarization and cognitive dissonance and being able to change our minds. And that is kind of comparing the climate change debate to the vaccine debate, because they're different in one really fundamental way, which is that the climate debate has really like, you know, become more of a thing recently. Um, like most of the people listening to this, when you were born, your parents didn't have a position on climate because it wasn't yet in the national discourse. Even if, you know, it had been written about in some papers and there were some scientists who knew what was going on with carbon and everything changing in the atmosphere, it wasn't the national conversation it is now where everyone has an opinion and a side that they're on. Most of us were born into a pro-vax family. And I mean, that's also like not a true statement because we didn't have the pro-vax, anti-vax, false dichotomy going on in the public narrative back then. But we were born into a family and a culture where almost 100% of the people, um, you know, believed in vaccination and were vaccinating their kids. It's the default stance in our society. Um, So almost everyone who now gets labeled pro-vax, I mean anti-vax, at some point had to change their mind. At some point, they went through the cognitive dissonance of, but wait, like vaccines save millions of lives. Vaccines change the world. Vaccines are safe and effective. At some point, all of the pharmaceutically created slogans, all of the fault science, the rewriting of history um, came crashing down on them. And they had to say, whoa, is everything that I've ever heard and been told about this not true? A couple months ago, the Instagram account Echo Unafraid posted, she posted a, just a perfect post that captures this, um, this thought process. So this is her own thought process when she started to really be open to information about vaccines is other than what she'd been told her whole life. So she wrote, I want to know. I need to know. This is too much. I can't know. What if? What if it's true? No, they wouldn't lie to us. Surely they are safe. Wouldn't it be illegal? The media would be all over this if it were true. But the CDC, the FDA, they look out for us. Gosh, this is too much. I don't want to know. But my babies." My doctor, trust my doctor. Surely my doctor knows. Safe and effective. Phew, all these side effects are normal. All kids are this sick. 
I should read the science, the studies. But the science is contradicting what I'm being told. Ugh, I need to know. Vaccine ingredients. These don't seem safe. Toxic on their own, but safe combined? I'm not sure I want to know. I don't want to lose friends, but I need to know. Maybe I can secretly know. No one has to know. What happens if I don't know? What if my kids are harmed? What if they are sick and no one can find the cause? What if they die in their sleep? This is happening all around me. Do I believe mothers? How do they know? Ugh, I need to know. The manufacturers aren't liable? That can't be true. Get it together self, surely they have to be safe. But if they make us healthy, why is everyone sick? Again, the media would be all over this. Gosh, this is too much. I don't know if I want to know. But, oh no, I think I know. It's so clear now. How is this real life? I'm glad I know my babies are safe, but so many others are not. Knowing is hard. Is there a way to unknow? No. Someone commented my exact thought process over the last six months. Someone else, seriously, my thought process over the last 10 months. So accurate. I started questioning after my two-month-old twins developed severe eczema, eczema after his two-month shot. Exactly. Goosebumps. I think this is how everyone feels, and we almost all have these exact same thoughts when we when beginning our research. This is exactly where I'm at right now. This is how we all feel coming to this truth. So anyway, my point is there is a lot. My point is that <laughs> almost everyone who is questioning vaccines had to go through a dark night of the soul to get to that point. It's hard. It's hard to realize that there's so much more than what you're being told. It's hard to realize that you are actually actively being lied to by the government agencies that are supposed to protect you, but who are basically just an extension of the pharmaceutical companies that they are so financially entwined with at this point. It's hard to realize that the media is just a spokesperson for the pharmaceutical companies and that they have their talking points literally handed to them. It's hard and no one wants to be on on this side of things. You think I love speaking out about this and putting myself um, in danger? You think I love being talked to the way people talk to me online? No one... <laughs> has anything to gain from speaking out the way that I'm speaking out, except saving the lives of children. So um, I just had to add that to this whole piece on um, cognitive dissonance and being open to other information. Basically, anyone who is called an anti-vaxxer right now was open to other information, and that's how they came to be here. They stepped outside of the narrative that had been handed down to them. Oh man, it's hard to talk about this. I don't love it. And I am super appreciative to those of you who are still listening this far into my rambling, rambling. Um, Okay. I'm going to be done. And thank you again so, so much for listening. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. 
We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there, and I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E. S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.